I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending March 6th. In this episode, Northrop Grumman just completed a mission to repair a satellite that is still in orbit. That's the first time anything like that has ever been accomplished. We invited George Leopold, our resident expert in space exploration, to explain the details of the feat. Also, we keep attaching things to the internet. Doing so will make the world smarter, but it's also making the world less secure. On today's show, we'll talk about how one IC company is adopting a technology to make its chips more secure. Physically unclonable functionality, or puff, in the news. And among the most popular stories on EE Times are teardown stories. When a company comes out with a hot new product, everyone wants to know what's inside. We're working with an engineering firm that goes several steps beyond that. Reverse costing, later in today's show. Some satellites are fairly inexpensive to build and lift into orbit. For example, Tesla plans to deliver broadband services via satellite. It is lofting hundreds of them into low Earth orbit at an estimated cost of about a million dollars per satellite. The most sophisticated satellites, which tend to be parked in geosynchronous orbit, might cost as much as 400 million or more to build. And if one of those satellites is physically heavy, the cost of launching it could double the price tag. The point is, is that some satellites are really expensive and really, really expensive to replace. If satellites don't break down or get damaged, they will eventually reach an end to their functional lives, and if they need to be replaced, well, that's what you have to do. Except, now that's changed, and it changed only last week. George Leopold is the author of a biography called Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom, and he writes about aerospace for EE Times. He's a regular guest on our podcast, and we invited him back to explain what happened last week. Okay, so George, tell us what the uh, big deal was. All right, so uh, last week, Northrop Grumman announced that they had successfully docked basically a a repair shop satellite to an Intelsat satellite in geosynchronous orbit. This is not easy to do. Orbital mechanics are complicated, uh, especially when you've got two unmanned ships. We did the, f- the first uh, rendezvous and dockings in the 1960s, and it took a lot of work to figure that out. So it's a, it's a fairly big deal. And um, they apparently, Nor- Northrop Grumman did this on their own dime. There's some um, huh. a couple of different projects within the government. DARPA's got something going, and NASA's got something going as well. I think the NASA program is uh, farther behind. It's to grab an old Landsat satellite. But the possibility of being able to prolong the life of satellites is, is a pretty big deal, especially for the satellites in geosynchronous orbit, because those are very expensive, you know, just by virtue of the fact that they're flying at 22,000 miles up as opposed to low Earth orbit. And Northrop Grumman said that's where they think the business uh, model is for those really expensive geosynchronous satellites. Interesting. So the reason this hasn't been done before is it's hard 
And what were the economics? Were the economics such that it cost less to let to, to retire a satellite and loft a new one versus fixing one is, or is Northrop trying to change the economics with this, uh, with this demonstration? Yeah, I think they are. And I think they have, um, you hmm. know, if you can, uh, extend the lifetime of a, of a satellite by five years, I mean, you're going to save launch costs, you're building a new bird, uh, all of these things. And, not only will it refuel a satellite, but it'll you know it, it'll check all of its uh, it'll check its health. It'll move mm. it. It can move it to a new location, and then when the uh, whoever owns the satellite decides to take it out of commission, it'll move the satellite to what's called a graveyard zone, which means it's out of the way of all of the other satellites in geosynchronous orbit. And it's getting crowded up there. Right. That's part of the problem. It is getting very crowded up there. I mean, you see SpaceX is launching constellations of 60 satellites at a time. So you got to have some way to move these older satellites out of the way and eventually decommission them. Wow, that opens up so many cool questions. But the first one I wanted to ask is the, um, the vehicle used to do the repair is that itself a one-shot, or is that now something that's orbiting and can be used for subsequent repairs? Yeah, it could be. Um, the MEV-1, that they basically extended the service satellite. So that stack with the Intel satellite is going to go up to sort of a holding orbit at 22,000 miles. Then it will refuel it and stay with it and monitor its systems. And I think it then can undock and connect with another satellite. Although Northrop Grumman has said they're planning a second launch later this year to move another, probably, I, th I think the client is also Intelsat, another aging satellite. And by aging, I mean about, I think about 15 to 18 years old mm. and, and dock with that and uh, fuel it and check its systems and, and again, put it in, uh, in, a, in a new orbit. To your knowledge, uh, were the original satellites built in such a manner that this would ever be a possibility? I mean, is, is there like a, some, some docking, whether it's just a ports or just a simple grapple? Yeah, I think um, basically Northrop had to work with what uh, was on the Intelsat satellite Huh. And figure out a way to, um, you know, grab onto it. And I think our story showed the picture of the initial contact that it made with a probe and then yeah. pulled it in and then just used the, the, the structure of the Intelsat bird to connect to it and then make the, you know, the linkages so it could refuel, connect to its systems and do the maintenance work and then push the whole stack up to where they wanted it. So uh, there's some pretty clever engineering involved in doing that. And, and, and again, I, I, uh, I asked Northrop Grumman if, this, if there was any government money involved. They haven't gotten back to me, but I know DARPA is very interested in this capability, not only for uh, servicing satellites and extending their lifetime, but also getting uh, removing space junk, which is the other big problem. I was going to ask about that because you you alluded to that earlier in the conversation here. There's so much stuff in orbit, it's getting crowded, and some of the stuff in orbit is literally junk. 
Yeah, it's spent uh, boosters, dead satellites. I mean, you know, we've been sending stuff up since 1957. There's stuff of various sizes. Uh, there was a near collision a couple of months ago, I think literally over Pittsburgh, and they just missed each other. So uh, sooner or later, two of the two things are going to collide, and then you have this cascade effect where all of these pieces spread out and increase the chances of more collisions. You know, you've seen it in science fiction films, and it's true. So now one of the requirements when you launch a satellite is you have to have enough fuel left to decommission it. That is to to fire the engines one last time. So when it, you can bring it down, it'll burn up in the atmosphere and not hit anything, and hopefully chunks won't hit uh, land when it comes down. So uh, there's there's definitely a major requirement with, for this, especially with companies sending up you know sixty or seventy satellite constellations at a time. Wow, interesting. So space repair as a service, possibly space cleanup. Yep. Uh, is there? I know this is speculative. But is there any prospect of if you can fix something, can you break it? In other words, sabotage. Yeah, somebody's probably working on that. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I know of nothing in the open literature saying that, that anybody's talking about that, but I'm sure it's probably be, being considered in the, uh, you know, in the skunk works here and in Russia and in China. You know, the, the Chinese and the Russians have pretty active anti-satellite programs. And one of the reasons is they know how dependent the West is on these satellite networks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've, they've pursued ASAT programs. We stopped doing it in the 80s because we realized if we keep blowing stuff up in space, we're going to bring our own satellites down. So, yeah, I mean, there are, uh, there are also ways of blinding satellites uh, that we've worked on. The Russians have worked on this, probably the Chinese as well. That's the easiest way to knock out a satellite without causing all this debris and, you know, taking out your own satellites as well. The the Air Force has done tests on lasers that could blind satellites. Fascinating. That's a whole nother can of worms. Let's just be happy that we can repair the ones we've got, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, George. Thank you so much for your time. All right, Brian. Good to be with you. Take care. That was author and EE Times editor George Leopold. His article about the Northrop Grumman mission is on the website at eetimes.com. It's called Satellite Repair Service Makes Its First House Call. Or if you got to this podcast through the website, there's a link to George's story right on that page. A day after George and I spoke, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, selected Northrop Grumman as its commercial partner for the agency's Robotic Servicing of Geosynchronous Satellites program. The program objectives include in-orbit repair, augmentation, assembly, detailed inspection, and relocation of client satellites. The industry is constantly talking about how connecting all sorts of devices to the internet will make the world smarter. We hear all the time about the bright shining future of smart homes and smart factories and smart cities. And it's certainly true that connectivity is helping to make the world smarter. For starters, the things we can do with our smartphones unquestionably makes us all far more capable, far more quickly, than we would be without them. Now, by adding connectivity to more sensors and more robots and more electronic devices of all kinds, we can manage so many more things in a far more intelligent way, whether it's our homes, a manufacturing floor, an agricultural field, a data center, basically 
any endeavor you can think of that does use electronics or could. We can manage all of it far more efficiently and save resources in the process. Now, that's the upside. The downside is that if any of this stuff is going to happen at all on a large scale, it has to be done with minimal expense. When you're talking about electronics, minimal expense means with the least amount of complexity. Security measures add complexity, however, and therefore more expense. And so a lot of people making products that will be part of the Internet of Things skimp on the security or skip it altogether. The Internet of Things is only just beginning, but already it's proving to be a security nightmare, with people hacking cars, nanny cams, heating, ventilation, and cooling systems, you name it. We are introducing smart technology in a really dumb way. So for the last few years, most IC vendors that make products for the Internet of Things have been trying to build security capabilities directly into their chips, right into the hardware, so that those capabilities are, well, maybe not exactly free, but pretty inexpensive relatively. EE Times editor Maurizio De Paolo Emilio recently wrote about one of those efforts. International editor Junko Yoshida called him up and asked him about the security issue and how the company Maxim Integrated is addressing it. Like uh, any good thing, there is a downside to IoT. So <laughs> it, it's uh, becoming uh, an increasing attractive, as you told me, for cyber criminals and for cyber uh, attacks. And in this way, we have uh, a trend, a growing trend of everything connected. So uh, in this case, uh, security is uh, a, a, an element that should uh, not be underestimated. And uh, in this case, uh, we need uh, two approaches, hardware and software. Mm -hmm. So um, to, to define a good security, the hardware-based approach is more, more robust than software. Sure. Uh, because uh, it's uh, uh, more difficult to, uh, to modify a physical uh, protection system. With Maxim technology, uh, with chip, uh, chip DNA, uh, the, the key, the secret keys that protect the, the data, all the, the, the data, are generated only when uh, necessary and never uh, stored uh, in the chip, on the chip, in the chip. So right. this is important, and the uh, unique key that the chip DNA, chip DNA uh, will generate is uh, uh, used for only that application or for that uh, cryptography operations, mm -hmm. and uh, then is uh, eliminated immediately after any operation. So in this case, you don't know about uh, which is the key. And in this way, SIP DNA is, uh, is called, uh, so is based uh, on physically unclonable functional technology, PUF, P-U-F. In other words, as uh, Maxim suggested has, so the technology is called PUF SIP DNA uh, technology circuit in, uh, in this case. So, and it is important to have uh, uh, the best security because uh, unclonable security is the key to success, as Maxim suggests us. Right. So, hang on here. Without Maxim's chip, which 
I also think it's kind of cool because it's inside a microcontroller and all that. But given that we didn't have the given that we, before we didn't have this chip, how did people in the IoT world apply the uh, cryptography to their chip to protect the data coming out of IoT devices? Yes, before the the designers can use. Uh, uh, cryptography chips together microcontroller, for example. Okay, so it was a separate cri- cri- yes, uh, crypto separate, keys. Yes, yes right. separate. Just to use two integrated circuits, for, uh, for example. In this case, Maxim uh, had the idea to integrate in one chip. So microcontroller, the core of uh, IoT system, but it's the core of any system, any device, with the, this technology, this uh, PATH chip DNA uh, circuit. Okay, so explain though that uh, I think you and I actually believe they talk about this last year, but uh, how they created this uh, physically unclonable functionality is actually the coolest part of this story. How did they figure out to do randomly generated crypto keys um, by using Puff. Can you explain that? Because I, I think that you said that this is a very elegant solution. Yes, it's an elegant solution. Yes, correct. Yes, it's a, a solution uh, it's very simple, based essentially on the intrinsic and uh, statistical nature of electrons. So the electrons, the particles that make up the matter. So uh, this is a random uh, behavior originated from uh, several factors such as uh, oxide variation, for example, device to device mismatching uh, or uh, the wafer manufacturing process that uh, introduces uh, randomness through imperfect or non-uniform deposition steps during the the process to create the packaging, for example. So these are all factors that uh, generate different values during the the probe on the device. And in in this case, we can, uh, based on uh, these uh, parameters, chip DNA circuit can generate a unique output value that uh, is not stored on the chip right. and uh, can help to, to reduce, to prevent uh, attackers from, uh, from several cyber criminals. Uh. So the cool part is that this changes every time the, the microcontroller actually sends data. Is that correct? Yes, change every time, yes. And it doesn't store the key. And the, yes. Every key is different. Yes, because... And we don't even know, because the key is not stored, we don't know what the crypto was, right? (laughs) Yes, because uh, in the case of an uh, invasive uh, physical attack, uh, such as uh, violation of data, for example, it it would uh, uh, cause an alteration of the electrical characteristics of the PUF circuit, the, the, the attack, changing the key that would be different and thus protecting the, the data. Wow, that is very good. But um, from what I gather, though, um, I think one of the executives at Maxim was telling you in your story, the hard part is really not the technology. 
It is to convince the industry that industry needs this. Yeah, I mm, I think that uh, uh, so the importance uh, is uh, uh, the success of any application. So depends on uh, uh, security, on the trust of users, trust uh, robust and uh, so easy to use solutions, for example, as as well as security uh, features uh, that can offer good uh, protection. So to to have uh, uh, integrated uh, components, all features in, into a single chip that can reduce, uh, so can reduce the bill of material, can reduce the space of the device, mm-hmm. uh, can uh, uh, can be a, a good element for time to market because the designer can implement the application uh, very easy. Right. So is th- this is not an addition to the whatever IoT, microcontroller-based IoT. We, we are talking about replacing that uh, MCU inside IoT with this chip so that this chip comes with the, crypto, uh, the sort of uh, uh, elusive crypto key yeah. uh, with the, in, in, inside, the, yeah. inside the MCU itself. Yeah, yes, sure. All right, Maurizio, thank you so much. Thank you, Junko. Thanks. EE Times just published the first few installments of a new regular feature called CloudWatch. Written by longtime editor and security expert Anne Thrift, it focuses on security issues in the connected world. We asked her opinion on Puff technology, and here's what she had to say about it. Puff, she said, can certainly help at the device level. But device and or chip level protection doesn't address cloud access point vulnerabilities or machine-to-machine communications vulnerabilities or stupid unhygienic practices for implementations. Now, stupid and unhygienic refers to things like leaving the default password set at password or failing to control access to administrative level functions, stuff like that. I've been talking to cybersecurity experts for more than 20 years, and they are continually astonished at how many companies fail to implement even the easiest security measures. That's one of the reasons why companies like Maxim are trying to build security right into their hardware. When companies come out with hot new products that are better, faster, cheaper, and do amazing new things, the industry of course wants to know how they work. And over the years, the companies who make those hot new devices have become less and less amenable to sharing that information, insisting that even a list of the components inside their products is somehow a vital trade secret, which, if divulged, would quickly and inevitably lead to their doom and destruction. Yeah, as if people don't own hammers. A couple of judiciously placed thwacks and, voila, trade secrets are revealed. and. Astonishingly, all those companies somehow manage to survive anyway. But secrecy becomes a habit even when it's pointless. And thus, a new industry is born. The teardown industry. There's now a thriving business of taking new products apart. Once upon a time, just finding out what's inside was adequate. But with growing competition, teardown companies have had to up their games. EE Times has just formed an association with a teardown operation called System Plus. System Plus goes much farther than just figuring out the bill of materials of the products that they tear down. 
international editor Junko Yoshida sat down with Romain Fro, the CEO of System Plus, to ask him what the difference is between reverse engineering and whatever it is that System Plus does. Uh, so I think most of the auditors know what is reverse engineering, but uh, it means that you need to extract the design for a component. Yeah. And uh, at System Plus Consulting, we are doing reverse costing, which means that we do not extract design, we extract a process from a device in order to be able to reconstitute the manufacturing production process and then to estimate the manufacturing cost to produce these components. So it's really the main difference between reverse engineering yeah. and reverse costing. I see. But, well, actually, during the interview, you mentioned a couple of times the estimation of cost is not an exact science. What do you mean by that? I mean that uh, when you are doing a, a process reconstitution of a device, yeah. uh, you can make a lot of measurements. You can make cross-sections, measure the layers of every material which are including in your product. Yeah. So this is exact science. But then on top of that, when you need to make cost estimation, in this case, you need to understand what is the supply chain. So who are the players which are entering in the production? Right. Uh, meaning what is the production volume? Because semiconductor, it's an economy of scale. So as soon as you raise the volume, you can decrease the cost. So mm -hmm. it's really important to understand all of the economics uh, behind the production of a device. So you need to understand also what is a financial statement mm -hmm. of, uh, of companies um, because cost is one thing. But at the end, on top of that, you need to understand what is uh, the indirect cost of a product, meaning what is the cost linked to the R&D, uh, the design of the components, right. uh, what is the cost linked to sort of the selling of the components, and all of the administrative expenses on top of that. So it's really important to understand all of these financial parameters and for sure, uh, there is no uh, exact statement uh, made by the players. They would not usually disclose that, right? No, exactly. So they do not disclose every information. And this kind of information can be complicated to extract. Uh, so it's based on knowledge, on discussions, uh, meaning that uh, it's really important to be able to modelize, for example, the yields uh, to produce a device, but manufacturer will never disclose that. So you need to understand uh, the physical model behind and to have your, your best expertise. Uh, but on top of that, it's mostly based on uh, hypothesis, hypothesis right. uh, which are really important to confront uh, from the industry. Right. Uh, but uh, these hypotheses are not exact science, <laughs> so meaning that uh, you cannot ensure that your cost estimation is exactly the cost uh, which is at the end of the manufacturing line from one company. Right. And if I can add something uh, which is interesting, it's usually even the manufacturer do not know the exact cost of their own products. Can you pick one product, for example, and uh, we're talking about margin. You know, margin is not just about the last guy who sells it, you know, margin by a distributor, but margin needs to be taken by every step of the way, right? So g give me one example of the product and explain how many layers of uh, supply chain or in the design chain and supply chain you go through to come up with the, what you call, target price. Usually, and now it's um, it's more and more the case in, in the semiconductor world, uh, a company can produce one component from the beginning to the end. Yep. Uh, but more and more, you have a new business model, like a fabless business model, yep. where one company will design a component and will rely on the sub-parties to make the manufacturing. 
So we call these companies foundries. Yeah. And then when you rely uh, to a foundry company, for sure, they will sold you uh, the wafers yep. with a margin on top of that. Yep. And the margin are not the same if you... Uh, the small player. Yeah, some player, or, or if you rely on big players like TSMC, they are doing very comfortable uh, margin. Yeah. Uh, so you need to take into account all of these subcontracting parts uh, uh, in order to take... Uh, uh, the direct costs and the indirect costs, the margin. Right. So when we mean margin, it's not net margin. Usually it's gross it's margin, gross, yeah. including all of the indirect expenses. Right. And then you can have very complex uh, supply chain where yeah. you will have multiple uh, parties. Yeah. Uh, you will have the design company, you will have the foundry companies, uh, you will have some OSAT players which are in charge of the packaging of a component, for example. Right. And then you can have a system in package, which means that inside one package, you will have different components from different players. Not, not, not just one, one company's chip, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah okay. multi-chip from multiple companies. And then to make a good cost estimation of the final product, you need to understand what is the real uh, uh, cost structures, the direct cost structure, indirect cost structures of all of these players. And then to have a very good understanding about the supply chain. Okay. I just threw out the word um, terminology, target price. Tell me what your definition of target price Target price uh, will be a price which will uh, uh, be rich mm -hmm. according to an average gross margin, uh, meaning that when we are doing a cost calculation, a bottom-up cost calculation, mm -hmm. uh, usually we obtain a cost from uh, the point of view of the manufacturer. Sure. And on top of that, we will add uh, some indirect cost figures based right. on financial statements, meaning that it will be an average of expenses, of indirect expenses linked to R&D, linked to marketing, to selling, and so on. These uh, indirect expenses are an average of all of the expenses at the company level. Mm -hmm. So it means that when we add this, um, these expenses, we will obtain a price and this price is, we call it a target price target or, price. or manufacturer price, meaning that we are using the average expenses of the company, but not the exact expenses linked to this product. And for sure, a company can have different strategy to sell products. You can have products sure. with low margin, with high margin, yeah. uh, and by reading with public statements, in fact, you have average data and not data for all of the, the segment of the, the offer. Okay, let's talk about why engineers need to care about cost. I mean, if I understand if you are the uh, sales manager of certain products, of course, or that you're the purchasing manager, you, of course you have to negotiate the price. So they are the ones who are really concerned about this costing thing. But uh, why do you think engineers need to care about cost? Uh, in company now, it, it's, it became to be mandatory to make some good um, design, which would be affordable, which would be efficient in terms of cost also right. on the market. Uh, mm -hmm. So engineers need to think uh, about cost also for at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. Uh, and there is a lot of uh, uh, design to cost or redesign to cost activities uh, which are made by engineers right. in order to uh, improve uh, the cost efficiency of, uh, right. of a system. So give them options, uh, what other options they have. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So th there is more and more uh, this kind of demand which has made at the R&D level, at the engineering level, uh, in order to, be, to provide for sure the best function, uh, uh, but also with uh, uh, an efficient cost to right. produce so it comes at the from end. the top. I mean, it comes from the very beginning. Yeah, of the designing. Exactly, okay. yes. Right. And it starts from the, uh, the R&D level, yeah. uh, R&D centers, which are 
building process. Right. Uh, they need to think in what the, the process they are building yeah. in order to be uh, cost efficient when they will transfer this process to high volume manufacturing, for right. example, uh, meaning that you cannot only uh, design something which would be very good in terms of, uh, of characteristics, but also you need to design something which would be uh, cost efficient uh, right. on the market at the end. All right. So um, I think if you're an engineer, uh, you are certainly aware that a lot of so-called um, teardown companies out there. And one of the things that you told me in the beginning of this conversation was that uh, knowing who got the design in is not enough, right? And so the two things that I want you to explain, the level of depth you go to in your analysis, that's number one. Number two is the... Um, what sort of products do you actually analyze? So you, you're right. It's um, when you are doing a teardown, um, especially on consumer products. Usually, you can find a lot of pictures already uh, available <laughs> online, right. which are free. Uh, we love those. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this picture will give you some good information at the beginning to understand what kind of design win uh, it's uh, in uh, in this system. Uh, on top of that. Usually, it will be only the major chipset, which yeah. will be identified, but not all of the components. And there is a lot of electronic content, semiconductor content in a, in a product, uh, which are very, very small, and in many cases not identified, like sensors, oh, um, like right. uh, many ICs Jeez, in, in yeah. products. After that, design win means that you are looking to the packaging level of an IC. And sometimes it's more and more frequent in consumer products. You have system in package, meaning that in package you will have multiple dyes, multiple right. products, uh -huh. even package in package. Uh, in this case, it, uh, it's not alighted by this kind of analysis. So you need to have uh, uh, a to new have level, level of information, exactly, yeah. in order to be able to find the good content, the right content right. inside the package. And if I take a short example, for example, uh, in RF, you have a lot of system in package. Usually, you can have players like Murata. Yeah. They are bringing some module, mm -hmm. but inside you can have dice from Broadcom, uh, from different companies. Oh. And then inside the design win approach, you cannot alight them. So Did it's it. really important to go to this other level in order to find the, the, this information. Okay. After that, you mentioned the kind of product we are targeting. Yes. Uh, so at System Plus, you are really looking still to consumer because uh, it's evolving very quickly and there uh -huh. is a lot of, uh, of driver coming to the, the consumer market. Yeah. So it means that it's smartphones, it's wearable products with uh, smartwatches, earbuds, uh, smart glasses. But also there is a lot of electronic in smart home devices, uh, meaning voice assistant uh, devices, smart speakers, so this kind of, uh, of product. Sure. And also we are really tracking the automotive markets. Automotive. Uh, automotive yeah. with mostly all of the, the, the new functions which are uh, bring on the market with ADAS, uh, all of the sensors which are uh, bringing more autonomy to so the cars. Lighters and radars, and cameras and so on. Yeah. And also all of the new um, connectivities which are in cars, connectivities linked to infotainment, uh, linked to uh, new communication like uh, 4G, 5G in cars, communication mm. between vehicles, uh, V2V, V2X. Right. And then uh, on top of that, it's important not to forget the other part of the electronic world, which is mean industrial applications, telecom, uh, sure. medical. So all of these uh, systems yeah. are also important to, um, uh, to follow. All right. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. If you'd like to see an example of the sort of reverse costing that System Plus does, the firm did a teardown for us on the Apple iPhone 11 and the Apple Watch 5 back in October. 
There's a link for that too on the podcast webpage. And if you got here from somewhere else, from iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, for example, you can find the podcast webpage at eetimes.com behind the link labeled radio. Join us for our weekly excursion in the Wayback Machine, in which we celebrate the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. On March 2nd in 1969, the Concorde jet made its first flight. Although it would eventually be clocked at speeds up to 1,350 miles per hour and fly as high as 60,000 feet, its maiden voyage circling Orly Airport in France was a lot more leisurely. It made a half-hour circuit around the airport doing about 300 miles an hour at a maximum altitude of about 10,000 feet. But to put its top speed in perspective, modern commercial jets average about 575 miles per hour. Mach 1, roughly the speed of sound, is 761 miles per hour. The Concorde could travel roughly twice that. You know, actually, it could fly faster, but the craft heated during flight And if it went any faster, it would generate more heat than the materials it was constructed out of could safely withstand. Its maiden voyage was in 1969, but the Concorde didn't start being used for commercial service until 1976, and it was mostly restricted to transatlantic travel, in part because the sonic booms it left in its wake were too disruptive. It was fabulously expensive service. By one account, a round-trip ticket in 1997 cost nearly $8,000. The last commercial flight was in 2003. The Concorde was also the centerpiece of the film Airport 79, The Concorde. That was the fourth and, understandably, the last in the airport series. It featured a cavalcade of distinctly 1970s stars, including George Kennedy, Robert Wagner, Susan Blakely, Jimmy Walker, and Charo. If you're not doing anything this weekend, we recommend you should watch it and tell us what you think in the comments section. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending March 6th. The weekly briefing appears every Friday. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course find it on our website at eetimes.com where you can find a transcript of every podcast. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.